Well, most weeks I, I begin this time with uh, trying to, to uh, give you something that, that kind of gains your attention and oftentimes I try to do it through humor. And, and I've got to be honest, a lot of times my preacher jokes, they're bad and, and you're, you're gracious enough to laugh anyway. But this morning, <laughs> you don't have to amen that, but, <laughs> but this morning I want to do my part to put an end to some bad jokes that, that uh, go around. And the bad joke that I want to end this morning oftentimes is told by teachers. Occasionally there are parents that participate in this, but most of the time it's teachers. And it always happens the same way. A student raises their hands and asks, can I go to the bathroom? And the teacher responds, I don't know, can you? As if that has ever been funny. And that, that joke is based on the assumption that there is a difference between can and may. That, that can somehow it, it implies ability, whereas as may is, is talking about possibility. Now, I, I think it's a bad joke partly because it's not funny, but also because according to Merriam-Webster, can and may have overlapped in their ability to uh, convey possibility and ability since 1500. So this is over 500 years that those two terms have actually interlapped or have overlapped and we continue to try and separate them. So, so it's well past its time that we stop telling that joke. Now, I may or may not have convinced you to stop with that joke if you are one of those that, that participates in that. But there is a significant difference between uh, um, can and will. And this morning, we're going to, to turn to one of uh, the, the most famous sermons of all time. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And the question this morning for all of us is, is not can. It's not the, the realm of possibility. As we have been studying the good, the good book, this series has been designed around you should. You should read this. And now the question turns to us, will you? And that's what Jesus is going to pose to us this morning. I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 5. A couple of weeks ago, I shared with you a, a quote from uh, an atheist by the name of Sam Harris in which he questioned what good has faith really brought to the world. He, he has suggested that faith has really done more damage to the world than it has good. That all of the wars and, and, and all of the, the hatred that exists, you could kind of say that it, it is because of, of faith. And just a a kind of cursory look at, at our society would suggest that some, a lot of people are starting to, to buy into that idea. The declining attendance in a lot of our churches, it, it starts to, to bring up these questions. You know, what, what's going on with society? What's going on with people that they don't value church, that they don't value worship in the same way that we used to? 
David Kinneman with the, the Barna Group has uh, spent years researching uh, various trends within uh, churches. And what he has discovered in his research is that young people today are struggling less with their faith than they are their experience of church. It's not so much that they, they don't believe that God exists or that Jesus is the Son of God. What they struggle to understand is where the church fits in connection with, with their faith and God. See, we live in a, a world where we have access to incredible amounts of information. Just a couple of weeks ago, if you owned a cell phone, you received a, a test notification from the President of the, of the United States as they were testing the emergency system to, that, that is in place in case there is some kind of, uh, of military attack or some kind of national catastrophe where they need to notify as many people as possible. And all of that happened in, in an instant. You got the notification. That's not the way that the world has existed for most of, of history. There was a, an email centuries ago, but it wasn't electronic. It was equestrian mail. And if you estimate that, that a, a well-trained uh, postal horse could travel at a rate of about 20 miles an hour, that that's about how long it would take to, to send a, a one-page letter from, uh, from your house to somebody else's. That it, it would take 20, uh, 20 miles an hour for them to travel. But today, messages travel at essentially the speed of light, which is uh, about 670 million miles per hour. Some of you may remember the day where, where uh, there were salesmen that would go door to door and they were, were selling encyclopedias and you would buy these world book encyclopedias and they would be on display in the, the center of your home. And when's the last time that you have even seen an encyclopedia, much less used one? Because all of that information is it's available instantaneously now. And the result is that either we get this, this um, compassion fatigue or we get this, this information fatigue that, that there's so much that's wrong in the world, there's so much stuff that we just grow weary of it and we just kind of try and tune out. Or the other side of the coin is that we make the goal to be just acquire as much knowledge as you can. Because there's not enough time to solve all the problems and so the... the the goal is to just be more knowledgeable than the person next to you. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, 
Anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now Jesus started this sermon on, on a very easy feeling note. He takes all of the, the downcast in the world and he says that, that while you're suffering, while you're, you're going through some hardships now, in the kingdom of God, that will not be the case any longer. But then, but then Jesus turns and he says that I'm not doing away with everything that you've learned about. In fact, I'm coming to, to bring it to its fulfillment. And then the most shocking statement that he, he makes perhaps in the entire sermon is that I, I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And it's shocking because Jesus goes on to give six examples, six practical examples of of ways in which these areas that, that their righteousness needs to surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. He begins with murder and he says that you've, you know that the scriptures teach that you're not supposed to murder, but I tell you that if you have been angry with a brother or sister, that you've already committed murder with them in your heart. And he goes on to, to make radical statements about um, about adultery, about the, the, the sanctity of marriage and, and the way that you, you keep your word, how you're supposed to respond to people in need and even how you are supposed to treat those that are your enemies, those that, that in fact are even enemies of God. A little over a year ago, I was uh, preparing to, to teach a a series of sermons on the Sermon on the Mount, and and I gathered a a group of uh, about six members, uh, six or seven members of of the church to uh, to kind of study the, this uh, passage with me and and to hear what were the questions that they had, what what uh, what things just stuck out at them as they were reading the Sermon on the Mount. And so, in preparation for meeting the first meeting, I asked them to to read the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, every day for a couple of weeks. It takes about 17 minutes or so to, to read the, the entire sermon. So I was asking for 17 minutes out of their day to prepare for this. And, and the first question I asked was just, what, what are your impressions? What, what was your response as you, you read this time and time again? And as we went through the different points of the sermon there was one comment that came up time and time again. I just don't know if I believe this. That, that this may have been something that was, that was good during Jesus' day, but, but our world is different today. So I, I'm not really sure. And this is people that have grown up in church and they, they believe that this is the Word of God, but they're wrestling with the, the radicality of what Jesus is teaching. How is it possible that he, he wants us to never be angry at somebody? 
How is it possible that, that he, he expects us to live holy in ways that, that we never lust after somebody? How, how can it be possible that marriages are, are for life with the exception of, of sexual unfaithfulness? So, so these expectations, they, they just seem too hard. That statement is, is a statement that, that people have made through uh, history whenever it comes to trying to understand Jesus' sermon. One of the primary ways of, of understanding the, the Sermon on the Mount is that, that what Jesus is doing is that He is setting the bar so high that it's not possible for any human being to meet what He is calling you to live so that you will fail. And in your failure, you will then become aware that you need Jesus. Now that is, on one hand, it's kind of beautiful, you know, that, that, that we need Jesus and it's true. The only problem is, Jesus himself doesn't agree with that interpretation. Jesus doesn't say that, that I'm giving you a bunch of stuff that you're never going to be able to meet. He doesn't say this, this is just hyperbole. And so you just need to understand the principle behind all of this. Because at the end of the sermon, Jesus gives his own application. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Therefore, if Everyone who hears these words, uh, therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. That is how Jesus ends his sermon. He divides the world up into to, to two different categories of people. And let me try and summarize it this way, is that, that you have this chair over here and it represents those who, whenever they hear Jesus say something, whenever they read something in the Word of God, they immediately do exactly what it has told them to do. These are the people that you would describe as they are on fire for the Lord. And then the other category of people, they are those that they hear it and they do absolutely nothing. These are people that may even question whether or not God exists. They, they don't believe that they need Jesus because they're a pretty good person without Him. And as you look at these two positions, these two chairs up on the stage, let me ask you, where are you sitting this morning? In your journey of faith, which of the two chairs would you put yourself in? My guess is that most of you, you want to say that, well, I'm definitely not that bad, but I'm not sure that I'm that good. I'm, I'm really kind of somewhere here in the middle. The problem is Jesus doesn't give you a third chair. 
The, the two options are either you hear it and you do it, or you hear it and you do nothing. The point of Jesus' sermon is that you do something with his words. One of my favorite stories of all time is the story of lawn chair Larry. Larry Walters was living out in uh, Southern California. He, he had dreamed of being an, an, airport, uh, an Air Force uh, pilot, but was unable to, to do so because of poor eyesight. In 1982, he went to uh, the... the uh, the military supply store and bought 45 eight foot weather balloons, filled them up with, uh, with helium, and tied them to a lawn chair that he had and weighed it down. He tied a rope to his truck and had some sandbags and things. He, he fixed a couple of sandwiches, grabbed a six pack of beer, and he sat down in the chair, had a friend cut off the rope, and he was just going to, to float up into the air. And he had a BB gun, and whenever he started to get tired of being up there, he would start to shoot out the BB guns. The problem was that he miscalculated how much helium he would need to lift himself up into the air, and he immediately shot up 16,000 feet up into the air. And being around LAX, he's starting to enter into some uh, restricted airspace. People are calling the police all over the place. A couple of hours later, he finally comes down in Long Beach. And the police are there immediately to arrest him. And as he's being taken to the police car, of course the news is already gathered around. And they're shouting at him, trying to find out, What would get into a person that would make them want to do something that is so foolish? And I love what Larry said. He said that you can't just always sit there. One day, you're going to have to do something. (coughs) And that's what I'm... (coughs) Excuse me. That's what I'm suggesting this morning is that we need to do something. With the good book, we need to do something. So let me just uh, put forth nine questions that that you can ask yourself as you read Scripture on a a daily and weekly basis to, to not just allow this to be something that you add more head knowledge, but that you do something with it. And this comes from uh, uh, Rick Warren as he, he used this uh, acrostic, uh, this acronym, uh, Space Pets, as an easy way to remember these. And it's Is there a sin to confess? Is there the, the, the person in the story, are they committing a sin or, or are they writing about a sin that I'm committing and I need to confess that sin? Is there a promise that I can claim? Is there an attitude that needs to be changed? Is there a command to obey? Is there an example that I need to follow? Is there a prayer that I can pray? 
One of the ways that the Psalms were used and continue to be used uh, often are, are as, as your own prayers. Whenever you struggle with, with finding words to pray, that you use the words of God, the words that originated with God, and you let them filter through you and, and speak them back to Him. Is there an error that you need to avoid or a truth to believe? Or is there something you need to praise God for. These are our nine helpful questions that as you, you read the Word of God, they all demand that you do something with it. See, at the end of Jesus' sermon, we're told that the crowds are amazed because He is teaching as one who has authority, not, not like the, the, their teachers that they were used to. What separated Jesus was He was demanding that they did something. G.K. Chesterton said that the, the Christian life it hasn't been tried and found wanting or, or to, to be found lacking. That, that it was missing something. But rather it appears hard and has been left untried. This morning, let, let me invite you to, to not just sit there. To not just sit in your chair every week. But to do something with the faith that you have. To allow Jesus to transform your life. To give Him your life and, and let Him do what He wills with it. And that's what we're going to sing about at this time. And if you'd like the prayers of, of some of the shepherds, they'll be gathered at the back. Or if you'd like to, to put your faith on in baptism. And we invite you to do that as we stand together and sing.